In your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're continuing our series of sermons in uh, 1 Timothy. And um, we are down to chapter 1, verse 6. And I'll be dealing with verses 6 through 11 this morning. Really a continuation from our text from last Lord's Day, but we'll pick up with verse 6. For some men... Straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanted to be teachers of the law even though they did not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And that is God's word. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray your blessing upon our time around your word and in your word. As we study it together, I pray your blessing upon us. Father, we need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to assist us. And we're thankful that the Lord Jesus told us that he would send the helper uh, who would indeed bring to our remembrance all that he said. And so we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would be our uh, helper here, that he would be our teacher, and he would open our eyes to see the truth and the reality of your word, and you would give us grace. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, in my sermon last Sunday, we talked about the danger of false teaching. I want you to understand, false teaching and false teachers have long been, always been, a danger to the people of God. Last week we saw it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. And everywhere the truth of God is presented... Satan comes and tries to either distort it or diminish it, to take it away, to remove its power from the people of God. In fact, Paul in Romans 1 talks about those who exchange the truth of God for a lie. Wherever the truth is proclaimed, Satan tries to bring in something different to draw people away from its message. Many times false teaching sounds real close to the truth. Sometimes it's very attractive. Sometimes it's something very easy to believe. Often the subtlety of false teaching is its greatest danger. But that's the way Satan works. He, the Bible says, disguises himself as an angel of light. And and Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 of those who are false prophets, deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. False teachers sometimes infiltrate the church and try to draw God's people away from the truth. And that was the problem, remember, that Timothy was facing as he pastored a church in the city of Ephesus. 
There were some men, certain men, Paul calls them. We think perhaps they were even elders in the church who were teaching things that were not true. Paul has left Timothy there in Ephesus to pastor this church. He's gone on to Macedonia, but he is writing this letter to Timothy to urge him to stand in the gap for the people of God, to confront these false teachers and to protect the church from those who would teach things that were not in accordance with the things Paul had taught and the truth of the gospel. It's clear that Paul believed that danger was real and that danger was imminent. You might remember he said back in verse 3, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. He went on to say that those falsehoods were myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Well, in the verses before us this morning that I read from 6 through 11, Paul makes it more clear what that false teaching was. It's clear it was a misunderstanding of the law of God. All I want to do, and I'm going to try to do it briefly this morning, is simply focus upon the error that was being taught in this church, the error of the false teachers, in relation to the law, and then the perspective of true teachers who understand a right, the proper place of God's law. And so we see in verses 6 and 7 the error of these false teachers. And Paul mentions three specific errors. The first error was they strayed away, he says, from the goal of true biblical teaching. Paul had said back in verse 5, remember, the goal of our instruction is love. Love from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say, for some men straying from what? From these things. They had lost sight of the first principles of biblical teaching. It's clear that their goal, their objective, was not to build the body up in love. But their teaching caused strife and discord and dissension in the church. The second error was that in their teaching, they turned to what Paul calls fruitless discussion. For some men, verse 6, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussions. What they were teaching in the church, the discussions they were having about what they were teaching, weren't fruitful, weren't producing the proper fruit that one looks for from biblical teaching but rather it was fruitless. It wasn't the proper evidence of fruit that came from their teaching. Then there's a third error. And that's in verse 7 where Paul says, you know, they, they had a desire to teach, they wanted to teach, but apparently it was from the wrong motives. And they would make confident assertions about things they really didn't know what they were talking about. Verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, I think there's something implied there and something clearly stated. One is, I think what's implied is they, they did seek a teaching position 
with wrong motives. They apparently wanted to have some influence, wanted to be a place of prominence, wanted to promote their own ideas or their own agenda, wanted to draw attention to themselves. They wanted to be teachers. It's interesting because, you know, the Bible warns us against it. Do you know that? The Bible says, James says, let not many of you become teachers. The Bible doesn't open the door and say, whoever wants to teach, let him come. It says, you be careful. Let not many of you become teachers. And the reason James gives is because for a teacher, there is a stricter judgment. It doesn't matter what you teach in the church. Whether you stand behind the pulpit, whether you're behind a lectern teaching to adults in Sunday school, whether you're in a classroom with children from toddlers through high school students, whether you're teaching a Bible study, whether you're teaching the women or the men, God will hold you accountable for the degree to which what you teach is in accordance with His holy word. You know, it's one thing to come up with all kinds of strange ideas on your own, but it's something else to teach those ideas to someone else. You will be held to a stricter judgment. And that's what Paul says here. These, these men, they wanted to teach, but they didn't know what they were saying. They didn't understand what they were saying and about which they were making such confident assertions. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see that two of these men were probably Alexander and Hymenaeus. If you look down in verse 20, you see that Paul says, I've turned them over to Satan. So they would learn not to blaspheme. You talk about a stricter judgment. Paul took this whole matter of false teaching seriously. And so there is this implied idea that they taught from the wrong motives. The clear understanding here that they really taught without knowing what it was that they were saying. I mentioned that last week that false teaching continues to be a problem in the church today. And we always ought to have our antenna up. As we read books, listen to preachers, teachers. I've said, you know, the elders ought always to have their antenna up here. Because it's their responsibility to guard this pulpit. Because in guarding this pulpit, they guard you. And they protect you. And so when someone is teaching, you need to ask yourself some questions. What's their motive? What are they trying to accomplish? What's their message? Is it in accordance with the truth of God's Word and what it proclaims? What's the result? Does their teaching build the body up and draw the body up in love? Or is there evidence of strife and dissension and contention as a result of their teaching? Does their teaching conform to biblical principles and biblical truth? 
these false teachers had the wrong motive and the wrong message. They wanted to teach the law, but they didn't teach it properly. So we come then, secondly, to the perspective of a true teacher, one who really understands the place of the law. It's amazing, really, over the history of the church, how many church controversies, conflicts, have arisen over the place of the law. Especially the place of the law in the life of a believer. You know, the law is important. It is, after all, God's law. He gave it to us. It is a central place in Scripture. It's important in the life of a believer. And yet so many times it becomes something that instead of being a source of blessing, a source of strife and discord and contention. I can remember back in when I was at uh, RTS, you know, people talk about Reform Seminary in Charlotte and where Gavin went, and Reform Seminary in Orlando, and Reform Seminary in Atlanta and Washington. Back in when I went to seminary, there was only one RTS. That was in Jackson. When I went, it was a very difficult time. There was a lot of strife and contention at Reform Seminary. And you could feel it, you could hear it, and you could see it. There'd be little groups gathered around, and boy, it was, it was contentious. It was over understanding of the law. You see, so often the law is placed opposite of grace. And obedience to the law is placed as a means of salvation instead of salvation by grace through faith. And that's what's happening here in Ephesus where Timothy is teaching. There were people who were supplanting grace with law. If you look back again at verse 4, the end of verse 4, they were teaching things which gave rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the demonstration of God which is by faith. They were leading believers out of the freedom of grace into bondage to the law. And that's a very, still a very attractive distortion of the truth today. It's easy, folks, to fall into the trap of legalism. It's very easy to, to live a life based on check marks. To go through every day checking off the blocks to make sure you've done what you think you need to do so God will love you or God will embrace you or God will accept you. Look folks, that's not freedom, that's bondage. Now the law is important. We keep the law. We're supposed to obey the law. But why do we obey it? We don't obey it in the hopes against hope that we can do enough that God will embrace us and love us and save us and accept us. 
We keep the law because we want to please Him. Because He has saved us. Because He has embraced us. Our keeping of the law is not to earn His favor. It's in response to His favor. One you see is the freedom of grace. And the other is the bondage of legalism. And here in this church that Timothy was pastoring, they were supplanting the administration of God, which is by faith. Legalism is contrary to grace. But we're kind of grown up, we've kind of grown up that way, don't we? Haven't we? Legalism almost seems natural to us. I I want to read you a a paragraph from Warren Wiersbe's commentary on 1 Timothy. Listen carefully to what he says. The flesh, that is our old nature, loves religious legalism. We love it because rules and regulations enable a person to appear holy without really having to change his heart. Legalism keeps it all out here. Objectively saying, aha, if I just do this, and if I just do that, and if I just do the other, then God will be pleased with me. But don't you see, the gospel is not focused upon externals. The gospel is focused upon the heart. And if we change the exterior without changing the heart, we've missed the point. So the gospel, you see, is good news, isn't it? It sets us free. It sets us free from the bondage of trying to satisfy a holy God on our own. That's what Jesus did. Folks, we couldn't do it. I don't care how hard you're trying this morning. You can't do it. You can't satisfy the just demands of a holy God. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus satisfied them all. And now he gives you his perfect righteousness, his obedience. And now, boy, if you have the new heart, you want the external to look like it, don't you? You see, that's how grace and law work together. We receive God's grace, and then we ask the question, how in the world can I please this God who has done so much for me? And he answers the question because he's given us in his book his law. Then Paul goes on to say a few things and I will just touch on them. In verse 8 a proper perspective of the law is knowing that it is good. So we just looked at the law folks is good. It's not bad. It's good. If you use it what? Lawfully. If you use it right. If you use it as a means of answering the question, all right, now that I'm a believer, now that God has converted me, now that I have a new heart, how do I please Him? That's the proper use of the law. Secondly, realizing 
that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the unrighteous. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to save the righteous, those who think they're righteous, or the self-righteous. I came to save sinners. Sinners are lawbreakers. We talk about three uses of the law. One is the law... gives us moral principles. You know, every, every civil law almost is based upon some aspect of the moral law of God. It's a general use where God's law impacts society. The second use of the law is it, it convicts us of our sin. Paul said, how would I have known sin without the law? It's the law that shows us the holiness of God. It convicts us. Let's be more clear. The law condemns us because we can't keep it. Then the third use of the law I mentioned already is that it, it sanctifies us. It's the means of, by which we obey God and by which we please Him. And the law is for sinners. In verses 9 and 10, Paul extrapolates from the law specific individuals who are under its condemnation. Verse 9, the law is for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murders, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. It's thought by most commentators that, that Paul here just kind of takes a trip through the Ten Commandments. Then when he talks about those who are lawless and rebellious, unguided and sinners, the unholy and profane, he's talking about those who violate the first table of the law, the first four commandments. Those Jesus summarized, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. People who disregard the holiness of God, take his name in vain, worship idols, disregard his day, all the rest. And then he begins to go one by one through other commandments. But he takes them to their extreme. End of verse 9. For those who kill their mothers and fa- fathers and mothers refers to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And he says the law is for murderers. He's talking about the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. When he's talking about immoral men and homosexuals he's talking about the seventh commandment you shall not commit adultery I may have gotten off on that on my list but uh, um, when he talks about uh, liars and perjurers uh, I mean, kidnappers that's right he's talking about the eighth commandment you shall not steal when he's talking about liars and perjurers he's talking about the ninth commandment uh, that you shall always tell the truth not bear false witness. See, the law is directed towards sinners. And they sit under its condemnation. And that's why they need the truth of the good news of the gospel. Folks, the responsibility of the church, Paul says, is 
to explain what's contrary to sound teaching. The things in verses 9 and 10 are contrary to sound teaching. They are contrary to the holiness of God. If you want to know why our country is in the state it's in, you read these verses. You want to take a snapshot of American culture. You read those two verses that describe the lawless folks. Do you realize we live in more and more of a lawless society? Where the law of God is disregarded, where it's trampled underfoot. We have a culture, let's just pull out a few of them. A culture, folks, that violates the Sixth Commandment, which says, Thou shalt not, what is it? Kill. And we live in a country, folks, that kills babies every day with the sanction of the government. The seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit what? Adultery. We glorify it, folks. Whether it be in movies, television, literature, we glorify it. We glorify it outside of marriage. We glorify it within marriage. glorify it. We accept it in its perversion. Notice Paul puts together immorality and homosexuality. If there's one thing that scares me about American culture, it is our open acceptance of homosexuality. You read the end of Romans 1. That is an indication of God finally turning his back upon a culture where he just gives them over, finally just gives them over. I try to avoid politics, but it scares me to death when we got elected officials who stand up in favor, folks, of homosexual marriage. And it's the church's responsibility to say, look, this is contrary to sound teaching. It is opposed to what God says. And it is in the law we find it. But our hope is not in the law, is it? Our hope is in what Paul calls in verse 11, the glorious gospel. The glorious gospel of the blessed God, he says, with which I have been entrusted. 
The gospel, of course, again, is the good news that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, satisfied the just demands of the law, kept it perfectly, so that now we can indeed be saved by grace through faith. And that not of our own. It's all a gift of God. How do we do church? That's the question we're asking all the way through this series of sermons through 1 Timothy. How do we do church? What do we find here about how we do church? We do church by being a gospel-driven church. By centering and focusing upon the gospel. Upon the glorious gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like to say that we are a we're a, we're a gospel-driven church here at North Point, not a program-driven church. We, don't, we try not to allow our programs, our activities to drive our ministry, but rather we try to allow the gospel to drive what we do where, here, whether it be a, a youth activity or a, or a men of the covenant meeting or a couple's dinner. We do those things because of the gospel. And because whatever we do here, we want it to draw us closer to Christ and help us embrace more clearly who He is. And then we also do church by loving the law. Would the psalmist say, Oh, how love I thy law! It is my meditation all the day. And why do we love it? Because we love it. Because it reflects the character of and the holiness of God, it shows us how we can live to please Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. And we pray, O oh God, for a special manifestation of Your presence among us here through the Gospel. And help us always to love it. To love the freedom of being in Christ. But to love Your law, because we know it shows us how to please you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.